0: Welcome to the NAS Heroes podcast, where we talk to leaders and researchers working on neonatal abstinence syndrome. This podcast is sponsored by Propella. I'm your host, Amanda Shea, Director of Marketing at Propella. In this episode, I am chatting with Dr. Walsh. All right, so welcome to the podcast. Uh, Can you tell the listeners about you and your research background?
1: Yes. Good morning, Amanda. Um, Thank you for inviting me. I am a neonatologist, a baby doctor, and I have been taking care of full-term and premature infants and their families for over 35 years. Much of my research involves doing clinical trials to improve the care that we can give the babies so uh, they can not only survive but thrive and that we are able to meet their parents' needs as well in the very stressful component of care after their baby's birth.
0: Right, oh my gosh, absolutely. And so the focus of this podcast is around NAS. So when did you first start treating NAS infants?
1: So neonatal abstinence syndrome NAS, which is also known uh, now more specifically as neonatal opiate withdrawal syndrome, unfortunately has always been with us. I began my practice in the mid-1980s, and we would occasionally see a, a baby who was withdrawing from maternal opioids. But at that time, the major drug of use was cocaine, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, and that uh, really didn't have a withdrawal syndrome. In fact, the farther away the babies got from being exposed to mom's cocaine use, the better they got. So it was toxic to them while they were in the womb, but as they got farther away from that exposure, they got better and better. Everything began to change in the late 90s, early 2000s. Around that time, there became a concern that physicians were not identifying patients who were in pain and thus were not treating their pain. So there was a campaign that began to educate physicians of how to assess pain and how to treat pain. And also at that time, newer, longer acting opioids were being released by pharmaceutical companies. Furthering that, uh, the accreditation program for hospitals added treatment, assessment, and treatment of pain as what was called the fifth vital sign. And with that, prescriptions uh, for opioids grew astronomically over a five-year period. So from about 2000 to 2006, there was a 6 fold increase across the country in the amount of opioids exposed. I'm in Ohio, and in my own state of Ohio, by 2010, it had reached the point where there were enough prescriptions written in the state of Ohio for every adult in the state to have received one or more bottles of opioid prescription medicine. Wow. Part of the problem was that the education to the physicians in part came from the pharmaceutical companies um, and these newer, longer acting drugs like OxyContin, were touted as not being habit-forming or addictive.
0: Hmm.
1: And we all were educated that way. And only in hindsight did that turn out to be false. It really was not based on any research whatsoever. And of course, OxyContin was just as addictive as every other opiate-derived product out there, just like the heroin epidemics in the 1800s. And so, just as the amount of prescriptions went up, the amount of physical dependence on the drug and psychological dependence went up, and so we began to see, between 2000 and 2006, a massive increase in people overdosing on prescription painkillers, of course, translated in to women who became pregnant and were also dependent on the opioids. And therefore, when their infants were born, they also were physically dependent on the opioids. So there's a little bit of a distinction that we wanna draw between what happens to adults and what happens to infants. So adults who develop an opioid use disorder have a physical dependence on the drug. Mm -hmm. If they do not take the drug, they will go through withdrawal and a very severe withdrawal with agitation, fever, vomiting, diarrhea, intense discomfort. And that physical withdrawal leads them to addictive behaviors where they will seek out that drug no matter what the consequences are. So infants will have the physical withdrawal symptoms as after they are born and the opioids that had been transferring through the placenta to the baby are now abruptly stopped. However, infants cannot go out and seek the drug. So infants are physically dependent, but they are not addicted. So overall, our approach has been to try and understand what is happening. And over really until about 2010, 2015, through that period, as would be expected, as the number of women who became pregnant went through the roof, the number of infants who were dependent on opioids after delivery also went through the roof, became so high that one infant every 20 minutes, was being born dependent on opioids. This swamped our healthcare system in states with the highest incidence of this, and it does vary widely by state. There were nurseries where over 90% of the newborn infants there were physically withdrawing from opioids.
0: So we had an
1: urgent need to understand and try and improve how we were treating these babies.
0: Right. Oh my gosh. So it sounds like, so the opioid epidemic in the early 2000s, so it sounds like in with the research John and I have done here at Propella, there really wasn't reporting until kind of 2012,
1: 2013. Is that correct? That's when really, um, people began to recognize the severity of the epidemic in
0: infants. Right, and so, I mean, it was going on before then, but it kind of It was going on before then, yeah. Yeah, okay. Then Uh, it
1: became uh, so bad that um, it really impacted, really everyone taking care of babies in the country.
0: Right, understandably. Uh, And then since then, what has changed and improved in the diagnosis and treatment of NAS infants?
1: Good question. There have been, so let's just say 2012, which (laughs) was when uh, we in Ohio received our first funding uh, from Governor Kasich to begin to understand uh, how widespread the problem was what the kind of problems that the babies were having and how could we improve the treatments. And in working in Ohio with the six children's hospitals that are in Ohio, we were able to show um, in a series of studies that their number one, none of the six hospitals were treating the children with the same drug the same assessment, the same duration of treatment, and that overall we had wide variation in how long the babies were being treated. Mm -hmm. So that the shortest center were treating babies for 12 days and then sending them home on morphine or methadone to complete their treatment at home. Other centers were treating for a very long time, 56 days, was the average in the longest stay center, and then would discharge the baby. But as we compared and used that natural experiment, we were able to see some best practices. And so we put together a best practice um, bundle and then we tested it in the six children's hospitals, and we were able to show, as centers adopted those best practices, uh, that the amount of opioids the infants were exposed to and the duration of treatment uh, and the stay in hospital went down dramatically so that all of the children's hospitals across the state came down to about a 13-day treatment.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And that treatment involved really several aspects of care. The first really, and the most important, was educating nursing staff and physician staff and others about how women came to be addicted to opioids. There was a huge stigma from care providers against these women with many saying, how could you possibly do this to your baby? And so we began an education campaign, educating people, really that there were two paths to becoming addicted to opioids. The first was from inappropriate prescribing of prescription medicines, doses that were too high and too long and the two main routes that we found were from wisdom teeth extraction in teens and young adults Mm
0: -hmm.
1: where large amounts of opioids were prescribed and the second were uh, sports injuries or other musculoskeletal injuries again where large amounts of opioids were prescribed and vulnerable individuals may become dependent on the opioid in as short as five days after that exposure, the second path was through traumatic experiences. That over half of the women who became addicted to opioids were self medicating after having experienced severe psychological or physical abuse, either in the home, through domestic violence, or Through child abuse or child sexual abuse. And the severe lack of recognition and adequate amounts of mental health treatment facilities left these women who had experienced such trauma really without help. And so they sought prescription medicines to numb that pain. And those were the two paths. So overall we were able to improve our recognition of the problem, improve the sensitivity of caregivers to the problem that the women were having, and shift their attitude. By shifting the attitude, women were more willing to come in and get care if they felt that they were less judged by the people caring for them and their infant. We were able to meet them during prenatal care. And when they were in prenatal care, their treatment would get optimized. So they would get stabilized on a prescribed opiate, usually either methadone or buprenorphine.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so the infant system's symptoms would be improved. Then we created a standardized process to identify the infants. And then finally, we were able to uh, improve both the non-pharmacologic care of the infants, including uh, minimal stimulation, darkened rooms, encouraging that the infant stay with their mother um, and have close cuddling or what's called kangaroo care, skin-to-skin care. Use mom's breast milk if she's in a treatment program Um, And if not um, able to use mom's breast milk, to use a higher calorie lactose-free formula. And so by improving that non-pharmacologic care, we hoped that we would be able to reduce the amount of pharmacologic intervention, both the numbers of infants who needed to be treated and the overall amount and duration of treatment and we were able to show that we were able to achieve reductions in all of that
0: that's so important yep and that's what we're working on here <laughs> propella yeah, a non pharmacological exactly. approach we're so
1: excited
0: <laughs> about
1: having another device to add to the non farm care such as the pillow mattress that can additionally soothe the babies and reduce their symptoms
0: right? Yeah, that's so important. And again, to your point about this whole reducing stigma, um, you know, I could just imagine how these mothers feel. You know, they're pro- they were probably really, and probably still today too. I mean, it's really state by state too, um, with reporting and and how they feel about uh, you know disclosing their addiction. And again, it, it's, it's so multifaceted, right? Like it's not a one track reason as to, you know, why they're, they're on opioids. Um, so again, yeah, that, that reduction and that education and eradicating the stigma is, is so important in, in trying to get the access to care.
1: You are so right, Amanda, um,
0: <laughs> that
1: I wouldn't go to care if, I felt like I was going to be judged for everything I did.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's just so important. Um, and then in terms of, you know, this is kind of up in the air, but I know on the national and state level, it's a little bit different. Um, are you satisfied with the state and national level understanding of NAS?
1: As you alluded to, it really does uh, vary by state. Mm-hmm. Uh, Some states have approached this as a public health emergency, similar to the pandemic of COVID. And if you deal with it on that level, uh, those states have typically been more successful in reducing the overall rates of inappropriate opioid prescriptions and in identifying and getting people with opioid use disorder into treatment unfortunately there remain a number of states that are trying continue to try i should say approaches that have been tried in the past and have been shown to be singularly ineffective which is continuing to look at opioid substance use disorder as a moral failing right. that should be addressed as a criminal venture um, with a very punitive approach where which discourages women from seeking help because they're afraid they'll be arrested and put in jail and their baby will be taken away from them. We've Since the 1980s, it's been shown over and over and over again that criminalizing drug use is completely ineffective and leads to the problems that we have as a country where it's estimated 60% of the people in federal prison today are there on low order drug offenses. And it would be so much more effective and so much more cost effective to get people into treatment rather than putting them in jail.
0: Yeah, I I couldn't agree anymore. I you know, I like John, I myself have been impacted by family members who have a history of addiction and it just, it so saddens me that that's our approach, that you know, someone who's struggling and really has a disorder and a lot of the times they're self-medicating because they may have mental health conditions undiagnosed like bipolar, depression, schizophrenia, and we're putting them in a system where it, it's not addressing it, right? Like in the prison system um, and relating it back to the mothers, I mean, I'll, you know, if you put yourself in their position, if they're afraid of potentially going to jail and losing their baby, they're not gonna disclose um, because that's, that's just not a humanistic approach to, to bettering and helping these individuals.
1: And so that, you are so right, Amanda. And that is one of the reasons why it's so important for people working in this space to educate our law enforcement professionals, public policy folks, legislators, so that we have more compassionate and humanistic treatments available and we stop trying to arrest our way out of this problem, uh, that we know it is not going to work. One of the really remarkable things about working with women with opioid use disorder who are pregnant is they are so incredibly motivated to get their addiction treated so that they can parent their child and be a positive force in their child's life. And so this is a really special window where we have the opportunity to reach them and teach them the skills to deal with the addiction in a more positive way and deal with the underlying mental health issues that led so many of them to this cycle. And at the same time, educating the providers, the physicians, the dentists, the nurse practitioners, to minimize the amount of opioids being used, to limit the prescriptions. Even very severe post-surgical pain rarely needs more than five days of an opioid. After that, non-opioid treatments. Um, such as regular old ibuprofen or acetaminophen, otherwise known as Tylenol, may be just as effective or more effective than the opioids.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, as we're kind of wrapping this up, in your opinion, what does the future research diagnosis and treatment look like for NAS?
1: Well, I really strongly believe that we need to move upstream. Mm -hmm. Um, So the education of uh, law enforcement, public policy, I I would consider as the biggest preventative measure, along with education of people prescribing opioids. But the next level um, is very exciting. There are a number of proposals uh, being investigated for different drugs that could be given to women who are pregnant or are in labor that affect the adult differently than it affects the baby. So that it could treat the mom's withdrawal symptoms or prevent the mom's withdrawal symptoms while blocking the action of the opioid on the infant's brain. And if these treatments, which I find so exciting, are successful, even though they're many, many years off, then there would not be a physical withdrawal in the baby. And I think that that is our goal, ultimately. In the meantime, we need to improve the other care, particularly the non-pharmacologic care, so that fewer babies are treated with drugs, that they have a humane withdrawal Mm -hmm. with the smallest amount of drug exposure possible for the shortest time while supporting their moms. You have to realize that pregnancy is only a nine month period. And this is a chronic illness that started before the woman was pregnant and continues after she delivers the baby. So that first year after the baby is born is a hugely vulnerable time. And we need to improve our social support systems to support them through that time. Anyone who's had an infant in their home knows how stressful that is, that first six weeks of sleeplessness and if you are dealing with your own mental health and use disorders during that time and add the stress of a newborn into it, um, we need to support these women more thoroughly and through the entire first year after delivery. Most of these women are on public insurance, Medicaid, Mm -hmm. and many states, Medicaid, they may qualify for Medicaid while they're pregnant, but in many states, that coverage ends at six weeks, and that is absolutely the wrong time for them to lose access to services that are going to keep them healthy and help them learn to parent their infants. So we've got a long way to go, um, but I'm excited about the improvements in our care. And I know that we're helping moms and babies every day to
0: have the best life that they can. Absolutely. And and that's the thing is that, Yeah, it's definitely come a long way from where it first started, and we're just gonna continue to make these improvements. And I think the more we talk about it and the more we educate people, because before I joined Propella, I wasn't even aware of of how much of an issue this was. So it's it's certainly been a very educational thing for me. Um, And again, it's just part of this larger conversation of, how we can humanely treat the moms, the babies, um, and, you know get them back to life and, and living together, and, and so they can live their best life possible. Yeah. I agree. Yeah uh, So as we're wrapping up, is there anything else you want to note for the listeners out there?
1: Um, I just encourage people to be compassionate and less judgmental that we don't know what path has brought the, the individual to be using opioids. But I know that if I had been exposed to a fraction of the pain that some of the women have been exposed to, that I would not be able to get up every day and soldier on like they do so if you can't do anything else be compassionate Um, and when you have an opportunity to educate law enforcement or other policy makers please seize it and advocate for those who can't advocate for themselves
0: absolutely such a great message to to end this episode um I so appreciate you coming on and educating us more on NAS, and uh, we're just looking forward to continuing to working together and helping these babies and mommies.
1: Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for reaching out.
0: Thank you.